Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. And once again, we are at the epic narrative and we are going to, uh, I, I know I get excited every time I think we're going to cover another entire chapter in, a, in an episode. Why? Because obviously sometimes I very much get stuck in a verse or two, but it's not that I get stuck. It's that because of this format, like we just want to wring out all the information that we can, uh, not necessarily, well, okay, that's probably a little dramatic. We don't wring it all out, but we try to get as much as we can in there, at least enough that makes, uh, you might, you know, ignite something in your brain of saying, hey, I'm really curious about that. Hmm, I'd like to do some research into that. I don't think my pastor ever brought that up before. That sort of thing is what we like to do, and sometimes it only means we get through two or three verses. But today, once again, I think we're going to nail an entire chapter. We're in chapter 25 of Genesis, and literarily speaking, (laughs) it's almost literally speaking, but literarily speaking, we kind of move through or move a couple major characters off the scene and, and develop two new major characters. And that's why I titled this Two Nations, One Womb. We're going to get into the birth of Jacob and Esau. But first, we have to get rid of uh, Abraham. So we kind of sum his life up in a few verses, which is bizarre, given the amount of, of information that we've gotten about his life over the last several chapters. Right Now we just kind of boom, boom, boom. Verse 1, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zim, Zimran, Josh, uh, Jock. Jokshan, Midian, Midian, uh, Ishbak, Shua, and then they had they had children, and they uh, they they're listed there. But then it says in verse five, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away with it uh, from his son Isaac to a land in the east. And Abraham lived 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons came from these places I can't enunciate, uh, and they uh, brought him to the field where, uh, and to the cave where Sarah was laid. And then in chapter, oh, sorry, verse 11, Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, and who lived in Ber Ladaru. All right, I, I know I didn't say that right either. Anyways, you can read it. So let me just kind of wrap that up. Abraham uh, lived and clearly had more children. At 140 years old, he started to have these kids. Now you can't, they list off the kids and they list off the kids' kids. He didn't have, and and Abraham died at 75. So they they were all moving along here pretty quick. He was, a, he was a grandfather again. I mean, that's what, 25 years? No. Uh, that would be 50. So 35 years. So in 35 years, he had these children, and they had children, which is not unusual, right? I was a, I, I don't know, was I a grandfather by 35? I think I was a grandfather by, no, I wasn't. No, I was not. I've only been a grandfather for seven years, and I'm 56. So anyways, do the math, Bob, do the math. No, I don't like math. You know that. I don't like math. I mean, okay. I like math. I know it's valuable. I understand how it works and numbers are uh, pretty revealing of crazy things that you can figure out in life. Uh, So on that part, I do like numbers and I understand math. I don't like math in that I don't intuitively think that way. I think in in storyline, and sometimes numbers just mess, you know, not they mess with the flow of the story, especially if, if you've got somebody in the crowd who desperately wants the exact number. Like sometimes I'm telling a story, <laughs> and I'll be like, so, yeah, uh, you know, it was like $170, and we were, and I want to get on with the rest of the story, and somebody's like, no, 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 no. It was $171.43, you remember? And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, why Why are you, what? Yes, it was $171.43. Awesome. Okay, on with the story. Anyways, but I'm wired differently than some people. And, and uh, numbers are beautiful things. And 
There are many, many times in life I needed the numbers in order to get in order to get on with life. So you can do the math. In 35 years, he had a bunch of kids, and they had they had kids. And and when it says that he um, gave them all, oh wait, wait, wait. This is what I want to tell you. This is what I want to tell you. This is a this is a bit a, a bit a tidbit that I found in the uh, in some uh, rabbinical teachings, not all of them. But according to the Torah, when it says Abraham, verse 1, had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, they believe that that is Hagar, that he actually remarried Hagar, Ishmael's uh, mom, and started to have children through her again. But not all rabbis agree with that. Not all. and obviously the Bible, the Bible, doesn't give any like support to it. But according to the Torah, this is Hagar. Hagar actually you know, bears him all these, uh, all these sons, which is interesting. And then later it says he gave his concubines uh, gifts, sons and, and, and his concubines. So it makes it look as though... Um, he had other children as well through other women that were just, you know, servants and concubines. Uh, and, and you usually picked up concubines. It, it, I know it's, uh, it's a horrible thing. The, the slave trade is a horrible thing. And, I, and, and so is um, uh, the sex trade. And I am not, I'm not advocating that in any way. And I don't think that this was a good pattern. I do appreciate the fact that the Bible doesn't hide what what is going on and we're able to see that it's been a part of of culture for a long time. But concubines were usually given to tribal leaders, clan leaders, um, uh, uh, government officials in in cities or villages or walled cities, uh, also known as strongholds. They were given in response to usually trade agreements between other clans and cities and villages. So the concubines that Abraham would have had would have been tied into probably trade agreements that he had with other large families, uh, you know, the, the seacoast uh, trades that he had with Assyria, trades that he had with Egypt. They would have they would have given him a concubine. In other words, they wanted it was a way of saying, okay, we are we are related now through blood. You'll have children together, so we'll have family ancestries here, which will make it a lot harder for you to come up against us in war and kill, or to drop the trade agreement, or just make a trade trade agreements with other people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now remember, Abraham was powerful. Abraham had a standing army. Abraham was a very attractive. Uh, person to be in contract with, and those were the con- that's where the concubines came. But uh, often that's where concubines come from. But still, to me, when I look at it in today's culture, you can't. In my head, this is this is a slave trade. This is uh, this is the sex trade. This is I own this woman. She's you know even if it's a uh, you know a daughter or a niece or whatever. But I like she's she's viewed as something less than, therefore she's property, therefore I can give her to you. You can treat her as you want, do with her as you want, uh, and then, you know, everything will be good between us, businessmen. It's it's not it's not cool. It's really not. So I don't want you to, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just said it. I know. I just said it. Yeah, there you go. It's a podcast. I can say what I want. It's mine. It's my podcast. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, on with the show. So not all rabbis agree. There you go. Uh, verse. Oh, so when he gets rid of everybody in verse six, um, he he gives them all enough to survive elsewhere. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a simple gift. What he gave them was basically um, not an annual salary, but enough to, uh, a retirement. That's where you go. It, it was like a huge retirement fund. And he poured out these gifts on them. And obviously their children were old enough that they could, they knew how to take care of, you know, sheep and goats and, and camels, etc. And I'm guessing a few of the wives or concubines wanted more than the others. Maybe they had more children than the others, 
but eventually he gives them all enough to live on and to start life somewhere else. And he sends them far away. He sends them to the land in the east. And he does this because he's going to give everything to Ishmael. And he doesn't want Ishmael to have, uh, or sorry, Isaac. Oh, oh, that would have really ruined your podcast. He gives it all to Isaac. He did. He wanted to make sure everyone in the area knew that Isaac was the sole heir. He didn't want any of the uh, the powerful people that he was in contract with. He didn't want any of them to be looking at the multiple children hanging out in the compound and think, okay, if, if we can find one of these powerful, you know, sons, sons of one of these, you know, this powerful tribe, maybe we can. Maybe we can, you know, take that to our advantage. Maybe we can uh, have him take out his brother, and then he'll be in charge. Very natural thinking, very, very evil thinking. But that was the that was the nature of the beast of the culture, and Abraham knew that. And he's and he knew that if I if I can get basically everybody out of the compound, pay them enough to survive, and not just survive but do well, they can still be part of the family, representing the family, but they're not going to be here. Everybody who comes by here will know Isaac is the sole heir. Isaac is the one uh, to to run everything. It also would keep Isaac's uh, distraction level down, right? He <laughs> Dad's gone. Dad holds everything together. Dad keeps everybody in check, and then Dad, you know, Dad disappears, and he's like, "I want, I want Isaac to run everything." And now everybody's like, oh, okay, dad, bye-bye now. And they bury dad, and now, you know, the squabbles begin. Now the the concubines start start pushing and, and shoving each other, and the, and the wife, Keturah, wants to step up, and she's like, I want one of my sons to run this. Why shouldn't my son, you know, run the show? Uh, why is it Isaac? Isaac, you know, he doesn't have any children. He's just got the one wife. He's like his father. Uh, or whatever, uh, obviously not like his father because he had multiple children. So anyways, they're, they're just, it's just squabbles. It's just squabbles, tension, uh, and Abraham Abraham's setting his son up for success. He's getting the distractions away. He's getting outside forces. Uh, he's weakening their position by trying to use other sons against uh, Isaac after he's gone. So he gets everything done. That's why he sent them away, and he sent them away well. Good gifts, plenty of money, plenty of of livestock to survive and and do well, like to to build their own little empire. And then uh, they go to bury Abraham, and it's kind of cool. I think the two brothers come together to do that. Ishmael comes up from the south and and walks with Isaac through the field with their mother's with their father's body. They take him to the cave, the only place that Abraham, you know, any only piece of property Abraham ever owned. And they bury him together. Now, now funerals can be really interesting places. Most of the time, I, I've done a lot of funerals. I I, uh, I know it's going to sound weird. I love doing weddings. And I'm very honored when I get to do a funeral. I, they, Like weddings, I'm excited for. Uh, I get, I, I mean, it's always a privilege to be invited into people's lives. That part has constantly been true in my life. I, I'm amazed at what people share with me in counseling. I'm amazed that, that I get invited to parties. I'm, a, I'm just privileged to be part of people's lives. So when I get to do a wedding, even if I barely know them, I, I love love. So, you know, celebrating love is easy for me. I engage in that really quickly. Funerals, to me, are just this really deep, sense of honor when somebody asks me to do a funeral because it's a funeral it is it is the opportunity to for the for the friends and relatives to come and and remember and honor i don't need to go into it all right now but anyways it's it's just an honor so when i see this i just think it's really awesome but i also know that it can also get tense not so much usually during the ceremony like the part i'm a i'm a part of usually the reception afterwards it can get a little goofy. People people can get goofy. All right. <laughs> I was going to tell stories, and then I was like, no, Bob. Just know that it could be. But I think the brothers got along. I think they understood their roles. They they understood what, what you know the issues that they had, and they just put them aside. 
I mean, Ishmael's probably, his biggest struggle was really with Sarah, and she's already been buried. I don't think he hated his dad, although his dad was somebody who pushed him away, in essence gave the, you know, the bread and the water to his mom and said, you need to leave now. But I don't think, I don't think necessarily that, you know, uh, I think I covered it in the episode, but I don't think they had to, you know, do it that night. I mean, he did. But he gave her enough for the journey. He didn't try to kill them. And I think eventually all of that came true. And you remember that it was it was uh, Ishmael who was crying out to the Lord under the tree, and the Lord heard him. So Ishmael had, a, I think, a, an okay relationship with, with his dad. And I think he had a functional relationship with his brother, half-brother. And they got together and they buried their dad. I, I just think the funeral itself must have been, you know, one of those opportunities for people to wonder, oh, you think, you know, you think I, you think Ishmael's coming? What do you think Isaac's going to do? Oh, you know, Isaac got the message today. He got the message. Ishmael's on his way up. You think he's bringing his mother? You think Hagar's coming? You know, there's all of that. But of course, as I've mentioned before, some think Hagar was already there. So it's just kind of, you know, was Ishmael and Isaac already there? It's, I don't know. It's just one of those curiosity things. Put it on that top shelf, everybody, and let's move on. Now we got a list of Ishmael's son. Uh, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael, who Sarah's slave, Hagar, the Egyptian, born to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael. Listed in order of their birth. Da, 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 da. I'm not reading them all. Uh, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers. Wow. Did you catch that? He had 12 sons. All of them started their own tribes and, and ruled them. So that meant that they, they made babies fast, and they expanded their families fast. That's probably multiple wives, multiple concubines, Ishmael was uh, was a, a ruler similar to his dad, just like just like God had promised. God told both Abraham and uh, Hagar and Ishmael, "I will make him a great nation, because he came from you, Abraham. I, I I'm not like I don't run out of blessings." And here we see that that is true. He gives, in essence, birth. He doesn't. I know gives birth to twelve sons. They have multiple families going on, all of their tribes expand, and and then, boom, like we're done. Ishmael lived 137 years, he breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from here to there, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Assur, and they lived in hostility, shocking, right, toward all tribes related to them. Well, what tribes are related to them? Oh, that would be the tribes of the, the north. That would be Isaac, right? And all the other sons and uh, uh, that Abraham had that you know were sent away. Like they, they basically kind of lived with a with a the chip on their shoulder, right? They they lived with the sense that we were rejected. We were we were unwanted by dad. We were unwanted by mom. I just kind of think that generally speaking, they were they were kind of a victim culture. And we've talked periodically about victim mindsets. And victim mindsets, they're always looking for evidence that says, hey, we don't we we don't get it as good as everybody else. Our blessings don't aren't as big as everybody else's. We deserve more, but we don't get more. People don't treat us right. People don't like us. People don't like our accent. People don't like our hair. People don't like the skin color, whatever. And 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 they constantly look for this, oh, it's because. It's because I'm from this tribe, right? It's because my father was was Ishmael and not Isaac. Like if the trade deal falls through or the, you know, or they didn't, you know, they weren't able to get as many sheep. They, they just had this constant check in their in their spirits that would be like, well, that's because, you know, we're from Ishmael, not Isaac. Like Isaac's the favored one. Isaac's the one that Abraham loved. Isaac, Isaac, Isaac. So it's just a cultural thing that is mentioned here in the here in the in the Bible, like in this literary sense, but again, like we literally moved through a hundred and almost 137 years of his life, 
it, almost instantaneously. I mean, we got a, a little bit more details about his childhood, so we didn't quite move through 137 years that quickly, but we moved through it pretty quickly. Just basically, the writer of of Genesis is saying, "Okay, I really, I'm really not going to spend any time with this guy. We're going to move him off because where we need to go is where we're going to go next, which is." Verse 19, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, from, you know, where, he's, where they're from, sister of Laban, the Armenian. Now, we just covered this in uh, in the last episode, so so we just kind of get that, those quick little notes, boom, 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 but People who are telling these these stories, of course, or looking at these notes, would be telling the whole story, and they would recount all that they needed to account when they see these notes. And one of those things that they would account is that he married Rebecca, but they still didn't have any children. That like his mother, Sarah, who Rebecca replaced, she can't seem to get pregnant. So Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Now, trust me, he's done this more than once. Anybody who's ever struggled with fertility, anytime, prays more than once. They they do all kinds of tricks. They they try. I'm telling you, I have no doubt that Rebecca, you know, drank certain teas. She probably rubbed on certain oils. She probably sat under certain incense. She probably had some sort of a um, cultural like clock that she would keep track of. Like there was all kinds of myths. There was all kinds of legends. There was all kinds of tales. She wanted children. Isaac wanted children. And they were praying to God, give us children. And so when she gets pregnant, they give God credit for that. And it's and she became pregnant. So they were, you know, they were they were obviously trying. But when they saw that she was pregnant, it was considered a miracle. And so the nation of Israel, even now, they look at their at the at their birth as a miraculous thing. It was a miracle that Sarah Sarah got pregnant. It's a miracle that that Rebecca gets pregnant. So their nation is rooted in the concept of the miraculous. And it says that at the time, the baby, the babies jostled each one, each other within her. They jostled each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went and inquired of the Lord. Now, as we read that, it's easy to say she just went to the Lord and was like, what is going on? But let's, you know, that word jostled, jostled, they, they fought. That's, they, there's no other way around this. They, this is not just a, a, a pair of twins kind of finding, trying to find space to feel comfortable inside a womb as it gets, as they, you know, it gets more and more crowded. And, and any, anybody who's been pregnant knows that, especially by the end, even if you only have one baby, things are crowded. My wife did not, you know, never had twins, but it was amazing to me how things got moved around in there because with one of our births, um, she ended up with appendicitis right toward the end. But no one knew it was appendicitis because of where the appendix had been relocated due to the child who was living in the womb. So they did not know what was going on. And I remember, man, it was, it was tough. Obviously, appendicitis is incredibly painful. And it was close enough to the end that the body, which is brilliant to me, right? The body's like, okay, we know if this thing bursts, this baby probably isn't going to survive. So the, so the, she gives birth a little early. She's still in excruciating pain. And, you know, not everybody agrees with her. Some people think she's just being a little wimpy. So they, well, one nurse forced her to get out of bed and start walking. And that's when the appendix actually burst because then things went downhill really fast. And, and again, they, they, the, the pain just wasn't located where the appendix should be. And we finally got, you know, one of those surgeons who was like, I'm pretty sure I know what this is. And I'm pretty sure I know why no one's caught it before. And sure enough, like he, you know, he was, he was scheduled for surgery. He said, we don't know what this is. 
But I'm going right here first because this is what I think it is. And sure enough, it was. Anyways, ta-da, she's alive today. Everybody was happy. Why would you tell us all this story? Just because. Jostling inside somebody. When you have pain, that's where I was going with this. When a woman has pain, there's a certain level of it that she understands to be normal. And then there's a level of it that says, this isn't right. And that's what my wife kept telling people in the in the hospital. This isn't right. Like I've had three other children and this isn't right. This pain is not what I normally go through. And that's where some believed her, some didn't. Well, this is going on inside Rebecca. She knows at some level, this is not normal. This is not right. Like these kids are not just moving. They're like fighting. This is not a matter of like, Mm, let me find a place to kind of curl together. Like the, oftentimes, you know, twins will come out and they, they have to put them, you know, really close to each other or they won't fall asleep. They have to almost spoon them together because that's the way they were in the womb. That's what they're used to doing in the womb. It's, it's beautiful and cute and precious. These two were not that. That's what, that's what this is saying. They, these two were fighting in the womb. It was ugly. It was painful. Uncomfortable. She probably couldn't sleep. I mean, it, it's just, oh, it's, it's, trust me, these words are intense. So she goes to God. Most, most commentators in the Torah believe that she went to a prophet. She had to find an explanation for what was going on. She had to find somebody who could tell her what was going on. So she went to possibly a prophet for some explanation. And what she hears is, there are two nations in your womb, which she probably thought, wow, I have way more kids than I thought in there. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One person will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Which, of course, was uh, not necessarily true in, in the culture. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like a rule. It was... It was a general principle that a lot of people understood that, that the first one out was the firstborn. And so generally, firstborns got a greater inheritance at the end. So technically, the younger would serve the older. In other words, the older would be wealthier and have more responsibility and take on the role that was expected of them as a firstborn. So it was really important that the firstborn be noted when you, when you were having twins. And what God is saying is, Yes, you got twins, um, but the younger's going. Uh, the older is going to serve the younger, because there are two nations inside of you, and the idea of nations is the idea of two ideologies. There are two completely different uh, paradigms that are in competition with one another in your womb. So Esau. Right? He. Oh, sorry. Well, just sorry. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get him born yet. So when the time came to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber. Right? And the first one's named Esau because that means red. Evidently, he had red hair. Uh. After this, oh, sorry, yeah, grasping the seal. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to him. So, so they they prayed for children for 20 years because remember uh, he was 40 when they got married. Now um, some believe that Jacob was a heel grabber because he tried to be the first one out. Some believe he was the first one conceived but that Esau pushed him out because Esau's personality was one of a hunter. He took advantage of Jacob in the womb and pushed him out. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that people have read into uh, the timing of their birth, the position of their birth, the, the heel grabbing. There's entire messages written about this, but, uh, and, and probably books as well. But just know that there's something about that that's noted because it's there's it's significant to the story. He grabbed the heel on the way out as if to say, I am not going to be left behind. And I'm going to take over the position I need 
in order to, um, you know, in order to rule over you. But it's not until after they're mitzvahed that their personalities start to uh, emerge. So Esau was a hunter. Uh, by that, it means more than, you know, more than just the ability to, uh, to kill things. He was a hunter both uh, in the field and relationally. In other words, he was, re- he was probably really good at playing the manipulation game. He understood how to, how to step in at the right time. He, he would lurk. He would hide. He would camouflage himself. He would hunt something down and obtain it. This is the mindset of a hunter. It's not just that he was really good with the bow. He was really good with the bow. But it was like everything in his, in his paradigm of how to do life was about the hunt. It was about obtaining the goal. Uh, this guy would have probably, if, if he was in the Western culture, he would have been one of these guys who was, you know, played games with girls all the time. Like he would have played the relational game. He would have, the hunt would have been what he was after. And when he got, obtained the girl, it would have been like, okay, got it. Um, on to the next one. So the boys grew up, verse 27. Again, we're covering a lot of years, just boom, 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 verse after verse. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. So Jacob played the long game. That's what it means. He was patient. He observed things. He understood that the role of the first, he was understanding, I guess, the role of the firstborn child. He wanted the role of the firstborn child. He knew that he could obtain it because He's, he's better at the long game than Esau. Esau was not patient. When he went out hunting, he knew how to get the hunt, but he went hunting for with purpose. Like it wasn't that hunting always went quickly for him. It's that he was hunting. Like he, he was a mover and a shaker and an understander of patterns and, and you know, and paw prints and, and tracking. He knew how to hunt, but, but waiting for ceremonies understanding what it means to sit, you know, for four hours having dinner with somebody who wants to just sign a contract and move on. But you have to show all this hospitality. You have to give all these compliments. You have to play all these games in order to be yourself a good host and be a good leader of the clan. And to like all of that drove drove Esau crazy. I'm sure he was in a few of them. He was you know, in essence, considered the firstborn because of the favorites that, um, unfortunately, Rebecca and Isaac played favorites. And and as they played favorites, each son had a plan. Each, each son kind of had an idea of how they were going to become the dominant child when dad died. And Esau played that that flash game. He played it quick. He knew this is this is all I got to do. I just got to be with dad when he dies. And dad wants to be with me when he dies. So we're working in this together. I'm going to end up with all the wealth. Dad's going to bless me. I'm going to be good. I don't need to learn all of this firstborn stuff. I don't need to be in all these ceremonies that drive me crazy. Let Jacob go to those. I don't need to be there. Jacob played the long game. He's patient, right? So he's, he's looking for all these opportunities to get to know people, to build long-term relationships with, you know, servants and trade partners. And, you know, uh, people would be like, well, where's the first, where's your firstborn son? Oh, Isaac would be like, oh man, he's out hunting. You just wait. When he comes, he's going to bring the best tasting game. He cooks it so perfect. Doesn't he, Jacob? And Jacob would nod and say, oh yeah, 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 he's a. He's a good hunter, but I'm curious, how are the, uh, and, and, you know, Jacob would remember this guy's family. This Jacob would remember this guy's, uh, the size of his flocks. Jacob would remember nuances about whatever in order to become the leader of the clan. He was, he was playing that long game. And if you want to do that, he played it perfectly. And that's what Rebecca liked about him. Rebecca knew, I know 
I asked God, you're the one who's going to rule this family. You're the going to oversee Esau. And both these guys, both Isaac and Rebecca know this, right? And both of them are playing a game that says, I'm going to make something happen. Rebecca's trying to make something happen that God said would happen. Isaac is trying to make something happen that God said wouldn't happen. They're both standing in the way of the plan. They're both standing in the way of, of what what God sees as the probably the biggest possibility to happen. Now you could say, well, what would happen if what would happen if Jacob uh, didn't take over? What would happen if Esau didn't sell his birthright? I don't know. You, I just think the Bible would have ended there, and God would have been out of ideas. He would have said, "Dang it, let's start another planet." I don't know, but I definitely don't think God's out of ideas. So he, uh, anyways, Isaac had a taste for wild game. He loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Why? Because you know they both had they both had their games that they were playing. Rebecca understood. Listen, somebody needs to run this family who knows actually how to run this family. And I love the way Jacob thinks, and I love the way he he uh, interacts with people. I love the uh, the wisdom he has on how to make deals. Esau is quick and 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 irresponsible when it comes to making deals. And then we see a picture of that right, you know, in the next paragraph. Once Jacob was cooking with some stew, Esau came along from the open country and was famished. He said to Jacob, "Give me some of that red stew. I'm famished." That is why they call him Edom, right? Because he's red. Uh, Esau's red. He had red hair, so he had a nickname, Edom. Uh, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. He said, look, okay, fine. Like, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore an oath to him, selling the birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and then they got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Now, again, there's a lot of, of messages that have been built around this manipulation, right? They've been built around this idea that, you know, we sell our birthright for a bowl of, of lentil stew. Now, the stew is probably red as well, which is why sometimes it's just called red stew. Sometimes it's tied into the fact that Esau has red hair. Listen, Esau didn't necessarily, it says that Esau thought he was going to die, right? This is something that evidently, as far as the, the oral traditions go, this is something Esau believed about himself to be true, that he was not going to live long because he was a hunter. I'm guessing he had some pretty hairy stories, ha ha ha, because he's a hairy man. He had some pretty crazy stories about things he might have been almost killed by. Tigers, bears, uh, uh, snakes. He hunted everything, and he was good at it. And if you're a hunter, and you've killed, you know, the first, you killed whatever for a while, you kind of look for the next game, the next big game. You look for an opportunity to go, you know, go to a different region of the world. You hear rumors about a particular animal that's very difficult to kill, and you think, I, I uh, think I'm going to go give that a shot. He'd go on these hunting journeys. He did not think he was going to live long. That's what it means. I'm going to die anyways. So, so, you know, Jacob's like, well, then, fine. You're going to die? Then sell me your birthright. Well, fine. You can have it. Like he's, he's flipping with it because in his mind, he doesn't need the birthright. He already has a plan to get the blessing. He knew that his dad was on his side. He knew that the responsibility of being firstborn son was not something he wanted. He wanted the riches of being the firstborn son. He figures, let Jacob have the birthright. Let him go to the parties. Let him sign the contracts. Let him do all the politicking that he wants to do here in the tents with all the people around the village. I just, this kind of stuff, that kind of life drives me nuts. I don't want anything to do with it. So he, he sells the birthright. He sells, in essence, the responsibility of being the firstborn. He knew Jacob wanted it. I mean, Jacob took advantage of the situation, right? Which is another whole story about how we can take advantage of people who are in need. He knows his brother needs food. There's food available. He could have just given it to him, but he took some. He took, you know, he takes advantage of of Esau, and he says, "Sell me your birthright." Fine, 
take the birthright. Esau knows Jacob wants it. Jacob knows Jacob wants it. Jacob knows Esau knows he wants it. This is a pretty quick exchange. I think in his own way, Esau also believed, listen, Jacob's going to be much better at this than I am. And I think he had absolute confidence that his dad was going to give the riches to him. So it was really no big deal. I get the blessing. You can have the birthright. From Jacob's perspective, right, he gives him the bread, he gives him the stew, and he, he probably left the tent. He left that area and probably went right to his mom and said, I, I got the first step of the plan done. She's like, what do you mean? What happened? Tell me, tell me all the details. Well, Esau came back from, from hunting. He didn't get anything. He's you know depressed and upset and hungry, or as we would call it, hangry. And he's like, give me some of your stew. And I was like, mm, give me your birthright. <clears throat> and Esau's like, fine, take it. But I made him swear to me, mom. He swore to me. He swore an oath. It's mine. When I read that, that part of the story, I also think this is probably something Jacob had thrown out to Esau dozens of times. I think for, for probably more than a year or two, he would throw out little things like, hey, well, why don't you give me your birthright? No, I'm not giving you the birthright. And it became it became this thing where Esau wouldn't give it to him because he knew Jacob wanted it, not because he wanted it, not because Esau wanted it. He, he wouldn't give it. You know how brothers can be like that, right? No, I'm not giving it to you. Come on, you don't want it? I know, but you do, so I'm not giving it to you. Like that whole that whole genre of genre, that's not the word you want. That whole concept of back and forth between brothers, I totally see that happening. And so when he throws it out this time, uh, Esau's tired, he's hungry, he's been asked, you know, 100 times for this thing. He already has a plan to get the blessings from dad, so it's like, you know what, take it. No, 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 what do you mean, take it? You mean, you seriously, swear to me, swear to me. Fine, I swear, I swear. All right, well, here's your soup, here's your bread. Thanks. Eats away, you know, lentils dribbling down his beard, whatever. And then he gets up and leaves. He he treats it flippantly because he thinks he has a plan. He treats it flippantly because for him, he didn't want it. It was something Jacob wanted anyways. And he was tired of playing the game, the long game that Jacob was playing. The long game of like, you know, I've got to, I've got to keep saying no to this guy. Like he's going to keep asking me over and over and over again. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this part of the game. I'm done. And this, and the story ends there. We're going to end the episode here. I hope you guys are having a fabulous day. I look forward to seeing you again soon on the Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Oh my goodness, we did it. 100 episodes. Can you believe it? I, I honestly, I, it's, it's, it's so surreal to me that this many have gone on and we've got so many more to go. It blows my mind. I remember starting this whole thing on season one and, and I remember thinking season one, right? It was the life of David. And I thought it might take me 12, uh, yeah, 12 episodes to get through the life of David. And then I thought maybe 15, maybe I can stretch it to 15. And then what did it turn out to be like 60? Insane. Nobody's ever that I've ever seen that I've ever uh, been a part of or, or researched. I've never seen anybody do that many. I've seen, I've seen life of David go maybe, um, 20, 24, uh, you know, uh, lessons, but nobody's ever gone that far in, in accomplishing uh, what we've accomplished here. So you guys have been a part of history as far as I'm concerned. Now, someday the world will know, but currently it's just us, and that's pretty awesome. All this past week, if you've paid any attention to my social media, I've, I've let you know some of my favorites and... Uh, you know, things, episodes that I think are always worth going back to and checking out just because the perspective is there. And that's probably the most radical thing about the epic narrative. And that's the part I kind of wanted to touch on now that we've hit this milestone is one of the main purposes behind uh, 
doing this, why I do all the research, why I, I put forth and read and, and over, I mean, it's, it's so much fun for me, but one of the main purposes behind it is I want people to consider a different perspective that God was good all the time. I think that so many people consider God good in the New Testament, bad in the Old Testament. And if you've listened, you know this to be true. I bring it up many, many times. But that's why I do the epic narrative. It really is. That and I love telling stories. And I think someday my my own kids will, my kids' kids will enjoy it. My kids, my great-grandkids will enjoy it. Uh, because if nothing else, they get to hear their grandfather or great-grandfather talk and tell stories, but really what I do it is I want people to at least be open to the perspective that God's been good the whole time, that God looks like Jesus, even in the Old Testament. And I don't think we change the meanings of words. We choose words in the, you know, in the, in the definitions, we choose the words that define God as loving and kind and, and make it look like he's Jesus, which he is. And we also choose to look at the, the, the destruction, the death, and disease as coming from what Jesus says it comes from, which is the, the dark side, the, the enemy, the, the evil one. Sin comes to kill, steal, and destroy. God comes to bring life and, and bring it more abundantly. Those are our first filters we run every definition through. And when we look at the culture and the architecture and the, um, the, the interactions and relationships, these are the filters that we run everything through. And I don't, think it, I don't think it hurts. I really don't. When I listen to them, and I do, not only do I research them and write out the notes and do the recordings, but I listen to them all again. And I keep thinking, yeah, I still really believe that. I, and, and to me, it makes more sense that God is good all throughout time. Uh, I also, as you know, get a little bit bent out of shape based uh, when, when I get up against a passage that I know preachers have used many times to manipulate people's behavior. I really, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. And it's mostly, some of it's personal. Like I have a personal issue with it because I did it. I, I preached in such a way that to, to manipulate and change people's behavior. And that it bothers me to this day when I hear those phrases, when I see that, that uh, behavior on preachers or in preachers or when I you know, see them on Instagram or whatever, I think, ah, oh, oh, this bothers me. This shouldn't be happening. We, like, we, we shouldn't be using the amazing uh, word of God to just, to just, you know, uh, what do I want to say? Beat people up. That's what I want to say. Not to beat people up. It's meant to encourage, to bring hope, to bring joy, to bring life. The atmosphere of heaven is love, joy, and peace. Every time we read the word of God, that's the, that's the voice that we should hear, a voice that's filled with love and joy and peace. And so many people, when they read the Word of God, especially the Old Testament, they read the Word of God, they read a God who is angry, who is ready to kill somebody, who is slightly disappointed and about ready to at least maybe reject you based on something that you might think or say or do. And I don't see that at all in heaven, and therefore I don't see it, I don't hear it at all in the voice of God when I read Scripture. And again, that's something else that we try and do when we uh, inter interact with the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll eventually get there, I imagine, in 10 or 15 years. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through the Old Testament, but I have so much fun doing it. I don't think I'm not. I don't think I'm going to stop. I really don't. Uh, I, I really don't. I really, I really love doing it, um, and I love that you guys have been listening for a hundred episodes. Now, I, I mean, a hundred chapters. Now, I should say we've done more than a hundred episodes. But we've done 100 chapters from the biblical narrative. And we will do other bonuses. We haven't done any this year, uh, mostly because my life has just been kind of crazy turned upside down. But we will do them. And you'll, there'll be more than just the Bible narrative in the Epic Narrative podcast. But for right now, that's what we're doing. And yes, Genesis, we're more than halfway through. And 
Exodus. I'm still writing Exodus. I haven't started recording that one yet. Still writing through Exodus, but I'll tell you, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a wonderful challenge when I bump up against these, these stories and these passages and these verses, and I think, wow, that sure does look like God wants to do something really mean or that he just finished doing something really evil. And then, you know, we break it down. We go back to our two filters. God looks like Jesus. And let's look at the, let's look at the culture. Let's look at the writer. Let's look at what was going on in the translators. What liberties did they take? What filters did they have? And that all impacts the story. And so we bring our own filters to it and our own um, prejudices. Uh, I don't deny that. I'm not, I, I definitely don't deny that. I definitely come to Scripture with a prejudice that God is good and He is love and He's available and He's relational. And I bring that to every translation I come to and, and, and I bring it to every verse. And anytime that God doesn't look that way in, in this particular English version, I say, all right, God, let's, let's tear it up. What, what am I missing here? Because I know who you are and you're not this God. You're better than that. You're gooder than that. <laughs> I've, had, I've had several really amazing teachers in my life and, and two of them I think of talk about the goodness of God extensively and they'll say things like this. Uh, one of them says, if, if, you know, take your best thought about God, as good as that is, and he's even better. And I think, wow, that's awesome. And then another one says this. He says, none of us are going to get to heaven, look at God and say, eh, I kind of expected something better. I expected, eh, you know, you're all right. But I, I, I imagined you way gooder than this. We're not, we're not going to do that. Like we can't, we can't imagine a God good enough. And as much fun as we have at the, Bible, at the epic narrative, moving the biblical narrative into, into that realm, I don't even think we've gotten there yet. And we've gotten some pretty radical uh, perspectives on things like David and Bathsheba, uh, David, uh, David and Goliath, uh, Saul and Samuel, uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the ark, Abraham, uh, Abraham and Isaac uh, on the mountain. Like we've we've hit some pretty big things that people look at and say, I can't believe in a God like that. Well, listen to the epic narrative and you might not have to. Have a good day, everyone, and thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.